On this, our inaugural episode of The Diff, I talked to Christine Abernathy and Eric Nakagawa, open source developer advocates at Facebook. Learn about why we named the podcast The Diff, our definition of developer advocacy, how we launch projects, and why Facebook is involved in open source. You'll also learn about the relationship between Eric and Triangles and so much more. Let's get to it. Hey, Christine. Hey, Eric. How you doing? Thanks so much for being part of this. Um, Eric, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Hi. Uh, my name is Eric Nakagawa. As Joel said, I'm a developer advocate here at Facebook. Um, I'm currently leading the AI and machine learning uh, pillar, which is like a category of projects that we have, um, and also doing things like sponsorships and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And my name is Christine Abernathy. Really happy to be here. Uh, again, uh, developer advocate, just like uh, Joel and Eric, my teammates here. And I've also been uh, helping out and focusing on AI pillar during this half and doing some stuff with Android and also helping out to see what we can do with open source and recruiting. Thank you very much to both of you for being a part of this. Um, I'm really excited about this podcast. We're planning to give the community a detailed look into Facebook open source from how we run the program to interviews with project and collaboration experts. In fact, our first season of the diff is going to cover like a hodgepodge of different topics, starting with this episode where we're going to talk about the Facebook over open source program from a 30,000 foot level. In other episodes, we're going to have um, discussions about specific projects with some really special guests, which I'm excited about. So let me first talk about the name of the podcast, which is probably a question in your mind, the diff. So at Facebook, we use a programming collaboration tool suite called Fabricator. So when we make changes to our code base, we use Fabricator's differential feature co for code reviews. So we shorthand a differential into diff, which is like a lot less syllables. So we say, I'm about to send a diff to fix that, or please review my diff. The name diff applies to our podcast as well. We're going to talk about the different topics during each podcast, and you, the audience, will also be reviewing our podcast for quality as well. So that's sort of the naming background of why we came up with that. Yeah, I also wanted to, to add in that I think the name diff is really fun because it's something that it's like it's a, it's a proof of change, right? Like someone went through the, the work to change something to hopefully make it better. And hopefully we can do that with our podcast. Yeah, and I guess it also, when we, we're going to be talking about different topics too, right? You know, diff, D-I-F-F. That's good for different <laughs> topics, right? Clever. So um, I wanted to get this ball rolling by talking a little bit about what a developer advocate is. Um, there are other terms used to describe an advocate. You know, you can have evangelist or developer relations or, or some other terms as well. We use developer advocate here at Facebook. So the way I would define a developer advocate is basically pretty much how it sounds. We try to understand the needs and pain points of developers that use our open source technologies and work on making that part of their life a lot easier. So we can do this directly, like we provide materials like code samples and tutorials and presentations, or we can do it indirectly by working with the engineers who created a specific technology to advocate on behalf of developers for improvements. So Eric, how would you define what a developer advocate is? You know, that's a really good question. I think to me, what dev advocacy stands for, and the reason I prefer dev advocate over other terms is I like being a person that can help kind of translate changes or needs from the outside internally and from inside out. So what I mean by that is sometimes um, we're, you know, the company's working on some really cool technology that we want to put out into the world. And I want to help tell a good story so that people can learn really quickly whether or not it's something that they want to use or something that could help their work. Um, and then alternatively, a lot of what we do, although not, not 
so much this half, but maybe hopefully the next coming years, is going out and actually talking to and speaking with developers and teaching them new things. And the great thing about doing that is when you're out there, you're talking to real people who have real problems, who are trying to you know, improve their livelihoods, um, maybe learn some new skills to you know, get to the next level in their careers and things like that. And bringing that back home, I think, is really important. So to me, that's what dev advocacy means. It means going out there, talking to people, bringing stuff back, and really advocating both ways, internally, to, so people inside can learn what you learned outside, and externally, so people outside can learn about what cool things you're working on at, you know, at work. Christine? Yeah, I pretty much agree with Eric. And uh, to bring home that point, uh, about a year, I think it was a year and a half ago, I went and uh, did a talk, and we were talking about different topics, and one of them was open source, and I met this um, developer who... First time he had heard about React Native, so a year later, he built a React Native app. Uh, he's doing it for deaf, to learn people, to teach people how to speak. And just yesterday, he sent me, he's just updated his app on iOS and on Android using Create, Create React Native app. And he just learned React Native about a year ago. And now he told me he wants to learn AI, and I was telling him about PyTorch. So... This is what you're advocating for, a developer to build something that's really useful for them. And externally and internally, it's just a joy to see somebody take what we've done here at Facebook and use it to make their lives better. And that's what I think a developer advocate is. So I thought it would be interesting to get a quick history of how Facebook open source came to be. So you know, many people know that Facebook was developed in a dorm room by Mark Zuckerberg on a stack of LAMP, right? Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP. So from the beginning, Facebook has had an open source in its culture. Um, Christine, you've been at Facebook the longest and on the open source team longer than both Eric and myself. Um, could you tell us a little bit on how our program came to be? Was it always in our blood? Was it a specific project that started it? Or was it more of a broad effort to be involved in open source? Open source definitely predates me, obviously, because yeah. I wasn't here when uh, uh, Mark and all used it to build Facebook. But um, as and when we actually used the software, Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP, we did know that it wasn't quite working always at the scale that we needed. So, for example, PHP led to Hack. And uh, Hack is what was like an improvement over PHP. And then we decided to open source. So in a way, because we have actually used open source it is in our blood also to contribute back to it, and Hack was one of those. And over time, that's actually been the case. There was an open source program office probably in the beginning. Again, I said it predates me. But about four or, four or five years ago, uh, James Pierce, uh, he kind of like took it over when there was n when it was kind of like a, a vast valley of not much going on. And that's when the open source program office actually became a little bit more formalized. And uh, we started going down this route to where we are today, where it's a little bit more organized, I would say so. But to your point, open source has always been in Facebook's blood. It's, not, it's just the way we do things because it helps us in various ways, whether it's innovating and having other people come and help us solve those challenges or just making us write better software, I mean, produce better hardware because we're working in tandem with the community. So I've been asked what decisions are made and what processes Facebook goes through to open source a project. So generally, I what I say is I try to find reasons not to open source something as opposed to finding reasons to open source it. So I like to promote open source as a core tenant of the company. However, we do have some guidelines and processes in place to make sure that we 
try to set some standard of quality for the things that we release. So Eric, maybe you can elaborate a bit. Um, how does Facebook decide what projects are open sourced and what is the process that we go through to actually do that? So that's a good question. I think one of the, one of the reasonings we have for open sourcing a project is um, it's going to make something better, right? So I think it's going to improve either something in the industry. It might be a new novel approach to solving a problem. It could be a great improvement or something that we built internally that we want to share with the world. And hopefully that can influence the industry and make people realize that there's other methods for doing um, maybe something that is a common, you know, a common thing that's done in, in, in technology. Um, in terms of what we look for when we're deciding if we should open source something, one of the most important requirements I look for is dedication from the engineering team. And to me, that is a critical requirement. What I mean by this is when we see a project come through, and there are many that try to come through, we look to see if a team can really contribute maybe a year of their time. So what this means is can they help, you know, see if, you know, review issues that come in? Can they see if there's pull requests that should be merged? And this is one, I think, really good filter for determining whether or not a project should be open sourced. However, it doesn't always work for all projects. And I think it works when the project that is being open sourced, um, one of the goals is to, you know, again, take in stuff from the outside. And that isn't always the case. Sometimes we want to release a project, say it's related to like a research paper, where we don't really intend on improving it. We just want to show, you know, tie this particular project to a paper that gets released. And in those cases, those projects don't necessarily require some sort of yearly commitment. But if it's some sort of new technology, like a service, like um, if we look at something like, you know, like React, React Native, those are two examples of, of teams that are heavily dedicated to keeping a healthy, vibrant community. And that's one thing I look for when a project, you know, comes, comes through. So not every project we release is deemed as successful, maybe to the external community. So the criteria of what makes the project successful is kind of nebulous to me, but I think a lot of it depends on the goals of the project um, and their expected audience and those sorts of things. Uh, many people uh, use GitHub stars as a metric of success. I think that is one metric, but not the metric. Uh, I think a successful project is one that has both a heavy project maintainer engagement and a healthy community to support it. Um, the community can be big or small, it, just as long as it's active. Um, Christine, what do you think makes a successful open source project? What do you think the general criteria for that is? Yes, it's actually an interesting question because it depends on sort of like the audience. So when we're releasing something, as Eric said, that is it going to be good for the community? Is it something that's novel? Um, and then you have to nurture it. So uh, back to your point, if there is an active community around it and people are getting excited in the community, uh, are they contributing back? Is there a number of external contributors versus the internal contributors at Facebook? Are there more people on the outside or on the inside working on it? Um, so to, in my mind, if a project sets out and that is their goal to build a community and they actually achieve that, like uh, IG List Kit and some of the uh, React Native, then I would say that that is a pretty successful um, project. But also, I also see a successful project, one that knows how to market itself. Sometimes I think of an open source project like, like a mini product. So you've got to have marketing. You've got to have uh, people around you who are supporting the project. And then there are also projects out there that, when I say supporting the product, there's some open source projects that actually build companies around them. People who are actually go and say, 
I am going to support this open source project because it's a big enough project. So you pay me and I'll help you build it. It's almost like the, the project has basically like graduated to another level. So that, again, is a successful project. And some projects are out there just to sort of showcase that we can do this. These are things that you can do. Uh, we can solve these things at challenges at scale. Uh, for example, we've got a lot of projects that may not be of use to, say, like a, a small developer, but when there are big companies out there, they might find this really useful, like Buck, which is a build system tool that's used at companies like uh, Uber. So uh, those are really good projects, and they will not necessarily appeal to all of the different developers, but some of the big companies. And success might mean just being adopted by some of these folks who have the same sort of like challenges that you have. So those are some of the ideas that I have around the successful projects. What did you set out to do? when you open source your project and have you achieved that? And it's not always the same answer. Yeah, you know, in terms of like what a successful project is to me, I, I it's hard to tell. It's hard to give you like, uh, here's a checklist of things that are successful. I think you can tell what the good ones are. And when you compare it to ones that are maybe, you know, obviously not, not ac active at all, you get a good idea. But it's hard to say like, if you do all these things right, you'll get it. One thing personally um, that I enjoy is this is like when I'm using a project or building something. If I go into a project and the last commit is three years ago, <laughs> like I immediately leave. I don't even, I, maybe if it's the only option, I'll use it. But at Facebook, we really try to keep our projects active unless there's a reason that a project, you know, hasn't been active or won't be active. And we try our best to prune out projects where, you know, there's just, there's not a reason for them to exist. Or maybe the state of the industry has moved too far beyond where it's not as novel as it used to be. And, and you also have to look at it, was the last commit three years ago, and are there a thousand open issues? Oh, yeah. If the last commit was three years ago and there's zero issues, maybe it's the kind of project that was stable. Yeah, one, yeah. Well, some people say, like, is it feature complete? And if it is, well, I mean, is there anything wrong with it? Be Like staying around, sticking around? I would I would advocate to, to keep it around if it's like, yeah. it's a truly feature complete type project. And we've we've had those arguments before. You mentioned this earlier, you mentioned React, and that's one of our most successful projects ever. In fact, it's like one of the most successful projects in on GitHub overall. Do you think they were successful just because they, you know, had a checklist of items that they went through to make it successful, or do you think they went above and beyond something to make it successful? So, okay, so I I've observed the React team. I've worked closely with them on certain things, but what I've taken away from the team itself, like not just um, the people on the team, but the individuals on the team, like the people working on it, is they really do care. And that is something that is special. And I think it, I think that what they produced and what, what React was when it came out was a solution to some problems that people had been trying to figure out. So it was a novel solution, but it's also a very big, different way of thinking when you're building you know, front-end software. And so I think those two things married with a group of people who really care and really understand what it means to be active in a community. Um, you look at the folks that are active on the community are currently running and managing it. They respond quickly to issues. They respond anywhere. It's, I don't know how, you know, when you, when you try to observe like their work and the response time, you think that you, you can't, it's hard to figure out what these people do. Like, how do they have a normal life? Because it seems like they're always on Twitter replying to people. They're always showing examples. They're always trying constantly to re-communicate or better communicate some decisions that they made. And to me, that's what keeps React, you know, being such a power, powerful and positive project. Yeah, and in terms of uh, just being open to the community, some of the things that I've seen them do really well is even when they're doing a really big change, 
they're going to invite the community to come in and actually participate in that. So you feel like you're actually involved in it. So they'll set up like this is the roadmap. This is what we're going to be working on. And then they will go ahead and work on it in a different branch. You get a chance to test it. They will not break you. It's like you have these many versions before you need to move in. It just feels like when you get into the React community that you're a part of something. Yeah, I remember um, when React was doing that major rewrite, like to your point, they had, um, I think Tom O had created isreactfiberreadyyet.com, <laughs> which is it's like a ridiculous domain name. But you'd go there and you would see 5,000 Xboxes. And then over time, there would be only 4,000 and then 3,000. And each of those boxes represented like a test. And that was making sure that when they did this whole rewrite and change, it didn't break legacy work. And to me, that's like, okay, nobody had to do that. But when you when like the manager of the team puts that out there, it's sort of like saying, hey, I think this is important. We all think this is important. And the community can see that. Now, granted, like React is, I would say, a, it's definitely special, right? React, like how many Reacts are there going to be in the world where you kind of change the whole paradigm of building front-end systems for software? Maybe not that many. Maybe more in our lifetime. Hopefully, there's more like these. Um, but not all projects need to be a React, too. So, so. Speaking of front-end projects, um, they've, in my mind, they've been the most popular types of projects that have come out in recent memory in open source. You have you know, React and Vue and Bootstrap and those types of things. Machine learning is now an area that's popping up and it's red hot um, and getting a lot of momentum. Just look at like projects like TensorFlow and PyTorch. Christine, what, what categories of projects do you see as hot moving forward? Well, that's a good question because I'm still sort of getting up to speed with machine learning. And just by listening to the community, there are like pluses and minuses to all of them. And uh, I think people are really excited about machine learning because it's part and parcel of a lot of things that's going on in life. Right now, um, it is definitely the hot topic. Everybody wants to learn AI. A lot of people don't know what it is. How do you get up to speed uh, really quickly? So um, it's almost like I've, I've heard it said that re researchers love PyTorch because it's just a way to iterate fast and to prototype and get your experiments out there. And then the next question is obviously, how do you get your models and all into production? And uh, PyTorch is, is uh, solving that problem with the 1.0 release, which was just amazing to just uh, take all the different pieces together, whether it was like Cafe 2 and Onyx, which kind of like addresses the whole problem. So I would say PyTorch is a hot uh, project. I guess I'm biased because <laughs> I'm at Facebook, but... Uh, that's what I hear from the community when I go out and talk to them. And this is when I didn't even know much about what machine learning was. Uh, TensorFlow is obviously up there and a, a lot of different things. That, uh, but I'll uh, say, Eric, what do you think? Because you've kind of been a lot more involved in uh, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, thanks for that. I think yeah. if I were to really kind of reframe the question, it's sort of like, why is AI and machine learning interesting right now? And if you look at like kind of the trends that happen in, in tech, right? Let's go back to when mobile became the hottest thing to be working on. Um, I feel like AI is in that. So I think the way that it transitioned was, um, it was maybe traditional web 1.0, 2.0 type, type development where you did a lot of JavaScript jQuery type stuff. And then suddenly the iPhone came out and people were on the fence, but then mobile devices started to take off. And so if you could switch and pivot your skill set or start from scratch and learn mobile development, you could make a lot of money. You could do really well in that industry. And then after that, I think it shifted from mobile to maybe like mobile first, right? Because mobile was a sort of like an add-on and then mobile became mobile first. And then now we're in this kind of waning point where everybody has a mobile phone and you're just trying to eke out more and more performance. 
And now there are chips on your mobile device that can basically do machine learning. And so machine learning is also extremely hot too. If you look at, I mean, it's not a new industry, but it's been around for 50 plus years. It's just now becoming really, you know, really a, attractive, you know, industry to work in or a skill set to gain. Um, because if you look at companies, they're raising tons of money if they have the word associated with machine learning or something like that. So I think part of it is a trend. I think part of it is just popularity. And I also think that um, I've been watching kind of even the JavaScript um, developer ecosystem grow. And at one point, like, I think the, 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 there was something like over 5 million <clears throat> JavaScript developers out there. There are maybe more than that now. There are so many new people starting to learn to code. And if you, if you pick up anything like JavaScript, if you pick up anything like Python and machine learning, I think you could build a, a career around it. And so that's why I think we're shifting and trending into machine learning. And the thing that I think, aside from the, the money that's attracting talent into these areas, the thing that to me is most attractive to machine learning is if, if the computer is the bicycle of the mind, said by Steve Jobs, like I believe machine learning is like a thousand to a hundred million times more powerful than a computer. Because if you can train it to do certain things, you're actually able to get a thousand to a million times performance out of what traditionally, you know, required a developer to do, you know, do by hand or something like that. And so if you can build these models and if you can train stuff, um, it could lead to much more, an interesting world out there. And I think that's what people are so excited about. Yeah. And you said that um, uh, machine learning has been around for a very long time. And there were some uh, algorithms that were there from way back when, which are now sort of coming to the forefront and it's being driven, obviously, by just the sheer the GPU and just like the basic infrastructure has become so much faster. And then machine learning as a community has always been open research. You share your research. So the, the combination of the open source uh, nature of it and uh, then the hardware becoming really better means that it actually has the potential and the chance to kind of grow much, much faster. So that's what the trend that we've been seeing lately is that you're not working in isolation when you when you when you uh, bring out a model, somebody can go out and improve on it, and uh, this is just making everything uh, grow a lot faster. And and you rightly said that it touches everything. Um, it's just like it's basically your brain kind of being applied to work, and so that that means it's going to be everywhere. Now that we have the hardware and we're having the software to just kind of bring it to life, it's just kind of like a no-brainer. You know, what, good point on yeah. the the. The technology getting faster and faster. I think like GPUs, I can't keep pace with GPUs because the work that we do, like we're, you know, when we're doing stuff for PyTorch, we're generally trying to produce tutorials that help people learn. And we want to kind of help them learn these things really quickly. PyTorch has these things called blitzes, which allow you to do a very deep dive into um, machine learning. And um, the GPUs, I think, if you look at how CPUs have transitioned, like it, it generally was like every two years, like transistors double. Like I think with GPUs, it's happening on an even faster pace. So something like if the top of the line GPU that you could buy right now in a year, it'll be one fourth to one sixteenth the power of the new one that comes out. Like it's growing faster than, um, you know, than the normal CPU law, which is, I would say it's astounding, but it also means you can get so much more done with less hardware, with fewer with fewer um, machines running around and doing you know doing your computations, and also in our phones right or in our pockets right now, if you have a, if you have a mobile phone, has an extremely powerful GPU. Um, I know Apple has a bunch of technology that allows you to do 
tons of computations. What is it like billion billion computations per second in the in the latest iPhone? And that to me is exciting because again, like I don't have all the solutions for when you should use machine learning, but I know a lot of people are thinking about this. And if we throw if we throw more and more CPU cycles, GPU cycles to these things, who knows what the future will hold for us? Yeah, with GPUs, they're taking Moore's law and just putting it on steroids, right? Yeah, right. It, it's amazing. Um, so as we as we record this today, our program has nearly 500 public open source projects. A lot of them being machine learning, a lot of them being front end, a lot of other areas as well. So that's a lot, right? And our team's pretty small. Um, but yet we manage this program pretty successfully. So um, we do that through a lot of the tooling that we get um, that we have available to us. Uh, Christine, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the tooling we used to make sure that our program is successful and we're able to manage those projects so well. Yeah, so there are different phases to a project. You talked about when we're thinking about open sourcing a project. Um, usually what happens is that... Um, Engineers will come to us and say, we want to open source something. What do we do next? So previously when I joined uh, the team, what would happen is somebody would send an email and there'd be an email chain and it would get lost after about a year or so. So we built a form just to make sure that we kind of had a way to say, why do you want to open source? And ask all the relevant questions to see whether you're serious about it. Are you going to have somebody to support it? So that was like step number one, uh, tooling just to make sure that you, people go through the process when they want to launch a project. But that's not the end of the story. Once you launch it, it's out there. You need to support your community. So we've got like an awesome open source tooling engineering team. And they build a lot of tools that help our uh, the projects interact with mostly GitHub because most of our projects are hosted on GitHub. And there's a lot of tooling and work that gets involved. For some of the projects, the source of truth is on GitHub. And for some of that, the source of truth is internally. And then committing code back and forth is not as easy as it sounds. So we've got like a tool called Ship It, and that lets you um, sync commits out to GitHub. We've got things like Import It, if you're source to bring code into our own infrastructure because we have to run all these tests to make sure that uh, nothing is broken internally. There's a lot that goes involved with it, but at the heart of it is one making sure that um, you're able to support the external community really efficiently, and we're all about efficiency. So we spend a lot of time, uh, even this half, even last week, we were talking about how can we sort of like make things even more efficient when we want to make sure that the collaborative, that uh, folks who are contributing are getting the best experience. We spend a lot of time on that. If we want to make sure that us, as when we're managing the program, don't have to spend a lot of time looking at collaborative, making sure that they're doing the right things. We've got a lot of tooling to the support to support that. We're also very cognizant about security. So in terms of like who who are the people who have access to our code, and uh, the tooling team have done a fantastic job to make sure that they're auditing that. So there's always continuous improvement uh, to make sure we've got dashboards for some of the projects. So each project that's open source has its own dashboard that they can go look at and see how many pull requests did they did, did came in, uh, how fast are they responding to issues. So these are some of the things that we're building to help uh, project maintainers be successful at what they do. And uh, we collect um, uh, information to just let them know um, how many commits, how many forks. These are some of the different metrics that we want the team to be looking at. And uh, uh, anyway, the bottom line is we want to make sure that uh, all angles, all the different uh, actors in this game. Uh, if it's uh, us who are the uh, developer advocates who are looking over the projects, if it's the project maintainers and they want to be active with the community, 
we're building the tools that allow them to do this uh, as efficiently as possible. And it's always like a moving thing. Yeah. Um, one of the things the tooling team recently added was um, we started to intake questions from Stack Overflow, which I thought was really cool because it gives you like a one stop shop to kind of check and see the health of your community. And as everybody knows, like I'll admit, like I will tend to Google something if I don't know what to do. And Stack Overflow just tends, tends to be the place where those answers live. Now, that's not true for all communities, but for the ones where it is important, um, we wanted to provide that to our uh, project maintainers. And it's pretty interesting to see, you know, um, it gives you a chance to see new incoming questions that come in because, you know, if you can answer a question once but have it, you know, read a million times, that's much more scalable than, you know, a one-on-one type conversation. Yeah. And I want to mention the little... Uh Dinosaur in the room, so-called. <laughs> so um, also one of the things that uh, uh, we do as um, in the open source developer advocacy team and tooling in general is we do not want every project that's launching to reinvent the wheel. And every project that's launches typically, not all of them, but typically they'll have a logo, they'll have a website, especially if they're a big project. And so we launched, um, was it last year, Joel? December, December oh. 2017. What's the exact date? Is this anniversary? I hope it was. It was December 17th. <laughs> no, so not close. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but Docusaurus, this is a project that was launched, and this was to make writing documentation easier. I know. I hope you're going to talk about it because it's like... I was going to talk about so it. I'm so yeah. going to let you uh, talk about it later, but that's just like an, another example of what we do to just help a project maintainer's life easier. Yeah, and just kind of one final note is a lot of the work that we do, you know, our team isn't that large, right? There's three of us sitting here um, doing our talk and trying to help maintain or grow 500 projects to whoever knows how many more we can you know, put out there. Um, it's not easy. And so we tend to look at things in a way that is scalable and repeatable. Um, and that's, I think, one of the biggest improvements that the formalization of the open source program has done is it makes it so it's much more scalable. Granted, we haven't solved everything, but I think it's much better off than when we had first you know, started to tackle it. Yeah. So in my career, I've been directly involved in a few open source projects, HHVM, PyTorch, and even back in the day when Microsoft was open sourcing their version of the CLR, they had a project called Rotor, and I was involved in that project as well back in early 2000. So I've been involved in open source projects for many years. However, if I had to choose a project that I'm most proud of, and Christine mentioned this earlier, I would have to say it's Docusaurus. And that's because it solved both a need that we had to internally consolidate all of the open source documentation infrastructure that was so disparate across all our projects. And then it also helps other open source projects um, outside of the company uh, a way to easily create websites and documentation themselves. And if I have to say, it has the best logo and the best <laughs> mascot ever, Slash. So that's another little reason why it's an awesome project. Eric, um, what open source project are you most proud of, if any? Open source project. You know, I'm, I'm not the type of person that releases a lot of software. And I don't know if it's my background of, uh, you know, launching something and trying to turn into a company. Um, I, I've done that quite a bit. Um, Way back in the day, this is this will go way back in time. Um, there used to be this social network site called Plurk, and nobody used it. That's why it's not here anymore. But it had these things where you could basically um, you could say what your emotion was 
at that time when you posted. So it would be something like Eric is happy, and then I'd post the text that would go along with it. Um, and back in the day, um, I was also a really big proponent of WordPress. So I would say I got my start in open source through WordPress. Now I could go even further back when I said I learned Linux when I was like a kid, but that doesn't really count. I didn't really contribute. I contributed to WordPress through a plugin and uh, plugin development and things like that. And I built a Plurk plugin that people could embed on their WordPress, which is like such a foreign concept to like run your own website nowadays, but it was so much fun. And to me, that made, that made me so happy. I think I had maybe 2000 downloads, you know, back in 2002 or three. Um, but I had tons of people. I didn't know how to do main, uh, open source project maintainer, you know, maintenance. I had a ton of requests that would come in through email and they would like send me code and I would like patch, I would decide if I wanted to add it. I was very picky about, you know, the work. There was no GitHub back then. Um, maybe there was like some sort of tortoise SVN or some who knows what was out there at that time. It was much harder than it is nowadays. And still that project gave me so much joy because um, the way that I rendered it, I made it look just like that social network and it would embed inside of my blog. Again, another foreign concept who blogs nowadays. Um, but that to me was kind of what got me to fall in love with um, open source because I built something that was for myself. But then I found out that there's a ton of people that also wanted it. Ton was only maybe a thousand, two thousand people, but that was a lot. Yeah, back in that. Yeah, time. That, no, that was a lot to me, and that kept me going. And so nowadays, I I still do a lot of little things where I'll like contribute little changes here and there. Um, I try to build stuff. I, I started using this. This is kind of going off topic, but um, you invited me to talk. So um, <laughs> I started using this thing called Glitch, and I love building little throwaway little things just for fun. Um, I built this one that was called like Pointer, and all it did was point to the screen wherever you clicked. It was like one of those, there's like a website where you could click anywhere on a page, and it would like, it would draw a picture of, you know, from somewhere out in the world, from Flickr or something like that. You know, have a person pointing to it. And I was like, oh, I could do something like that. So I built it. And I've been building a bunch of little things like that. And the thing that how this relates to open source is when you publish the project, um, the code is right there. So I'm not claiming any ownership over it. I mean, I, I probably probably could, but a lot of these things are little proof of concepts and little fun little toys. And that has been bringing me the most joy nowadays. Um, I'm still trying to figure out ways to do that with machine learning and things like that. But that's a little bit heavier, you know, in terms of like fun little front front end things that I could just build and put out there. Um, I've been building tons of little weird little glitches. And that to me has been kind of a, you know, on my shuttle rides here and there, I'll like build a little, I'm building a current thing now, which is just, I'm trying to draw triangles. I don't know, just to learn, you know, but that's why I think that the fun of open source is you can put something out there, you can share it and then someone can see your code and they can remix or modify it kind of like forking on GitHub. So, Eric, you um, have awesome stories, so you can feel free to go off topic anytime you want. It's okay. Um, Christine, how about you? you have any specific project that you're most proud of or that you've built or dealt with? Well, when you, when, uh, when you asked the question, I was thinking about a really exciting time at, uh, at uh, Facebook. I think it was, I'm thinking it was 2015, but time flies, and it could be 2016. Does anyone remember when React Native launched in GraphQL? I think 2016, 2016, 2015, 2015. maybe sooner. Yeah. yeah so, but that, that year was actually a, a pretty, a pretty fun year. Cause, uh, I remember going to react, uh, JS, uh, conf and, uh, they did a talk about relay and then they did a talk about react native. And immediately there was this like crescendo, like when is it launching? And that whole year was like a whirlwind of like, in my mind, it was like open source 
at this like really exciting moment. F8 came soon afterwards, and I remember folks running onto our booth and they just wanted to know more about what is this React Native because I think the iOS version launched officially at F8, and then about six or so months later, not that long afterwards, the Android version launched. And there's just this appetite and this excitement. So I was and GraphQL same same time. So those are the, the I remember those as like really fun projects that I was involved with with Facebook and open source. So I remember that time really well. It was it was really exciting. So given our extensive portfolio of open source projects, you know, we have over 500 or so public ones, right? There's probably some that haven't gotten the same exposure as some of our other ones. So like, for example, I think some of our recent PyTorch based launch, I mean, Python based projects um, are really, really good. So there's obviously PyTorch, which is, you know, very popular, a lot of exposure. But there's other tools for developers that have come along as well. Like there's PyreCheck, which is our performant Python type checker. There's Bowler, which is our Python code refactoring tool. There's Nubia, which is like a framework for building application, Python applications from the command line, those sorts of things. Um, Eric, do you, can you think of any project that you are excited about but feel has gone under the radar a bit and that you might, might want to mention here? Hmm. Well, I'm a little partial to, I don't know if this is a small project, but I still feel that Jest, Jest is one that I really like. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it nowadays. I think it got a lot of fanfare when it launched, um, and it may still be growing in popularity, but I think it's one that I go back to, I still use personally. And um, this is kind of not answering your question, but I really love Create React app. Like, it's really popular, yeah. but it's if you're learning how to become a, JavaScript developer, there's no easier way. Granted, it takes a little time to, to install, but um, there's so much in it, right? There may be actually, part of your question, there may be something in it that Re Create React app depends on that is a small little project. It might not be a Facebook one, but it's an open source project that um, that it needs to like help itself grow. And I, th I think one thing, one suggestion to the listeners is, you know, pick apart your favorite project and look at the dependency list and you might find something you never heard of. And now granted, there's a lot of drama around dependencies and projects, especially recently, but I think it's always good to poke around and find out what is in a project, especially a popular one, you know, what makes it run? And is there something you can learn from, uh, you know, maybe using it in one of your own projects or, you know, kind of finding out more about these things. But that's how I tend to find about projects. Um, less through, you know, the work that we do, I care about what we launch here, but I'm also trying to find out stuff that I like and I'm naturally drawn to and finding out how it ticks because I think that's one great way to learn. Like the way that I kind of learned to program was by looking at someone else's code. You know, everybody started somewhere, yeah. but I would look at code, I'd modify it. And so I feel like now that I'm much higher level in terms of ability, it's trying to understand like what, how are these people doing all these different things and how is it all interrelated and tied together? And a uh, package.json file tends to list all these things. I think for uh, for Python, it's a requirements.txt, which is bizarre, but you know, hey, that's how it works. And picking through and looking through these things helps you find projects that might go under the radar, but are huge dependencies for other projects, major projects. How about you, Christine? It's a coincidence that you said pick apart your projects because the one I was going to talk about is called uh, Yoga. So Yoga is uh, a way that you can... Uh, easily do flexible layouts. And it's actually a dependency on so many of our open source projects. It includes uh, React Native and Fresco. Fresco is an image uh, pipeline library for Android and uh, various other places. So it's like a core project and you can even use it standalone. And it's a pretty nifty thing. It's cross-platform. 
And a lot of the projects that I like, um, because I have sort of more lean towards like mobile, is the cross-platform projects, the one that you can use on iOS and on Android. So those are some of the things that I'm like really excited about that might be under the radar, but are really key for everything working well. Hello, this is Pascal. And this is Mihaela. And we are the hosts of the Inside Facebook Mobile podcast. Every month, we talk to engineers, designers, and managers. Product managers, program managers, and even engineering managers. We explore how products are built. The unique challenges we face while building mobile apps at Facebook scale. And we don't shy away from going really deep into the technical weeds. If you want to learn about the history of Facebook Home and Instagram stories. How we release each of our apps once a week. And many other topics. Subscribe to us on all podcasting platforms by searching for Inside Facebook Mobile. So we're starting to wind down here on this podcast, but um, I wanted to start a regular segment for the diff that I want to ask all of our guests. Um, it's basically about that first commit or pull request that started you down the path of Facebook. I mean, of open source in general. Um, Christine, do you recall your first open source pull request or commit? And if you I, do, <laughs> it's an interesting question because when I first did open sources, was basically I think. Yeah, it might have been when I was working with the Facebook SDK, but the one I remember most distinctly was I was trying to do something and I made a commit to a dependency that just uses. And that, and uh, so I remember that very well, but I don't remember the details of it. But I just remember that, yeah, I learned something. I, I, I contributed to something. I didn't know anything the day before, but I was able to contribute to something that was going to be used by a whole lot of people. And that just gave you a really great feeling that you were doing something I don't know it wasn't that major like I didn't save the world or anything but it felt like you were doing something really really good yeah. how about you Eric okay so my story is not going to answer your question but um <laughs> so one of the okay so the whole reason I got into programming it's like the same tired like tired story I wanted to build video games um I really did want to build video games and um I had a really old computer I had like a hand-me-down 386 sx it's Nowadays, it's like so slow, but it was my own computer. I got to work on it. And uh, at the time, this was, oh my God, it's so long ago. Um, I, I was running Windows 3.1 and I couldn't do anything on this particular computer. I couldn't buy software. I, I was like a poor little kid growing up. But um, I heard about this thing called Linux. And I ended up uh, finding every disk I could find um, and downloading this thing called Slackware. And um, I think it took something like maybe 50 disks, which took multiple days to do to pull this off to download from the in, off the internet <clears throat> but that's how i got into um i would say kind of the open source world and becoming an advocate very early on i actually worked for a company that only did windows software windows software, and they were like a contractor and i tried i pitched them i said hey we should run linux servers this is back in 1999 2000 and um i got laughed out of the room it was funny but uh when I when when I learned about you know Slackware and things like that, um, I learned finally about you know open source software, and I learned um, that I wanted to still build my game, and uh, I downloaded what I thought was like a variant of C plus plus. I had picked up a book and I learned it back in in high school, and um, I downloaded this thing called DJ GPP, Delores whatever. I don't remember the the details of it, but DJ GPP was a free. Um, G, you know, uh, C++ compiler. And it had this library called Allegro. And Allegro was a animations and, you know, um, sprite animating library. And one of my fondest memories was actually building, I never built my game. I still, to this day, I actually fulfilled that 
that goal of building a game and releasing it. And it wasn't great, but I did it. Um, I built instead a video game library on top of this sprite library called Allegro. And I called it, no, I don't want to mention the name because it's still somewhere on the internet. And I, I was really young when I posted to these, you know, back then, if you needed help, you couldn't go to issues. You'd have to actually email a mailing list. And if you had a patch and you had a, you wanted to submit a pull request, it wasn't called a, uh, a pull request. It was a diff and a patch. And you'd have to like um, UUN code it into like the, into the email that you would send to the mailing list. Anyway, times, times have gotten much easier, but I've, I've, really remember vividly remember spending time troubleshooting docs finding errors and things and communicating back to a mailing list mostly asking for questions you know asking questions for how do i do this thing documentation wasn't that important i would say nowadays it's much more at the forefront for a project to be successful you need good docs i still believe that um and um i just remember um that interaction with the developers on both allegro and the guy who built dj gpp um, was my first, in, you know, uh, entrance into this world, this online world of people building software. You don't know why they're doing it. Why are they doing it? And, you know, I would say that the early parts of my exposure to open source and really, you know, I use that, that, uh, game library. I took screenshots, um, of like little sprites doing certain things and it helped me get my first internship. So for, for myself, I have two smaller stories. So, um, Back in the day, I was involved in helping create this. You've heard of the C Sharp programming language and CLR runtime, right? So I was help, helping create the specifications for those in the ECMA standards body. So I actually generated um, a tool using XML and XSLT and those current technologies um, to actually generate the documentation for the class libraries for those two standards. And I put that publicly um, out in the world. So that was like my first foray into open source. But more recently, when I joined GitHub back in 2013, um, I joined when I, I joined GitHub when I joined Facebook. Actually, my first commit was to the HHVM repo, where I added all I did was add default values to parameters and a method. And at that time, I was like, "Oh, this is pretty awesome! Like the whole world is going to see that I did this. The company is going to um, utilize these methods that I actually just modified." And uh, you know, we we were putting a heavy focus on HHVM, so it was really popular. And ever since then, I've been addicted to open source. It's just it's just a great it's just a great thing to be a part of. So I didn't know you did C sharp or CLR, but um, I became a Windows certified whatever MCP something MCAD. Anyway, there's tons. Of, okay, if you're listening to this and you're brand new to tech, there used to be this world where everybody had acronyms behind their name because that's how you could show like your seniority, your expertise. I'm so glad we moved past that. Um, but you know, once you get into that world, actually, I think people still do that. So I'm not to downplay it, but it's tough because you constantly have to be taking tests. But I learned C sharp, um, and I think that's amazing that I probably learned off of what you and your team had worked on. Yeah, that's cool. That is amazing. <laughs> Small world, open um, source. That's what it is. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, so I want to close our first podcast out here. Um, I want to just do a quick round robin of questions and I'm going to ask both of you to answer these. So Eric, who is the person that most influenced you to get into this line of work? Oh, wow. Who influenced me? Um, I, okay. So I, I did a lot of stuff before I joined Facebook. I actually joined Facebook to join Parse and I was really sad when Parse got shut down, but because of the work that you know, our team did, we were able to open source, basically parse. And, you know, so that's how I, that's how I got into the open source team. In terms of me 
being active in open source, I would say one person I got to meet is um, Matt Mullenweg of uh, of Automatic. Yeah. One of the you know first I guess co founders of WordPress, but I, I met him in 2007, and I'd never met a nicer person. And when you meet him, and then when you see how he writes and you hear him talk, it made me have tons of respect for open source. So that's one person that um, I look up to. How about you, Christine? So I didn't know how far back you wanted to go from tech <laughs> or just to this particular job. You can go as far back as you want. That maybe yeah. got you involved in tech as a whole or open yeah. source, anything. Oh, well, my dad was an electrical engineer. So uh, that's actually how uh, my, uh, my background is in electrical engineering. So even when I was little, I always wanted to be an engineer, even though I had no clue what those little books that he had on his bookshelves were. They just lost a formula. So that's how I got interested in, in tech. And I always wanted to, to do that. So I knew growing up, I was going to be some kind of engineer and I wanted to invent all kinds of random things like sleds that go down places that have snow, no snow. Cause I grew up in Kenya. Like, why would you do that? But I always wanted to in invent something like that. So that was like basically what I wanted to do. And, uh, most recently kind of fast forwarding all these years to what got me into the open source team. I just basically went back to, uh, I wanted to work with my manager at that time, James Pierce. And I wanted to do something where I would get more like a 30,000 foot into what's going on at Facebook. Because when you get hired at Facebook, you may be working on a small role, but when you're on the open source team, you get to see pretty much like what's going on at Facebook because we literally will share things that run on our servers. Uh, so you'll see hardware, you'll see software, you'll see really low level things, Z standard. You just get an idea of what's going on and the length and breadth of Facebook. So that was actually my inspiration for why, why I wanted to join the open source team. And at heart, I've always been a, a developer advocate because even when I joined uh, Facebook, uh, before I joined Facebook, I wanted to, I created a, an iOS app and I wanted to use some of the Facebook SDKs and the documentation was really bad. So the, during my interview, I'm like, the documentation is really bad. And then they said, what are you going to do to fix it? And that wasn't my job role, but I spent time doing that. But going in, I always wanted to make sure that developers could use what you put out there. So, so that was my inspiration to become a developer advocate. I have a similar story to my father was yeah. a systems analyst. Um, and so I, he always had, he had the IPM, I think it was IBM XT when I was young. And I just banged on that. I think, I think I F disked his disc two or three times. So removed all of his work. He got mad at me, but I just always, he was my inspiration into getting computers as a whole. And then you mentioned James as like yeah. being an inspiration to get on the team. You, Christine, kind of my inspiration to join the team from my previous team at Facebook. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was um, seeing all the work that we that we do on this team and how serious we take open source is, it just gives me a lot of pride in the work that we do. So, um, last question, what do you do when you're not doing open source? What's your, what, what's a hobby that you, that's maybe not tech related or anything that's, Eric? Oh, I, I only do tech things. I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of like that. Um, so let's talk about fun things. So I mentioned before that project called Glitch. It's not a thing that Facebook has built, but it's a project that's run by a, you know, a tech company. And it's like a really quick and easy way to kind of get started and being able to build something without having a server. Um, I've built a bunch of random things. Um, the most recent thing I built actually didn't involve um, that particular tool, but it involved... Um, JavaScript using Node.js 
connecting to a Google spreadsheet, um, pulling data from that spreadsheet, calling an, uh, a book API to get um, information about the book, and then putting it back into the spreadsheet. So I did that for a friend. It was so fun. Um, and the idea was basically I had a friend who's been um, building her list of uh, books she's read this year, and she wanted a better way to kind of visualize it. And I was like, I could do that. And so I did it. And I don't know. I don't know what to do with it, but it's like a small little, you know, it's maybe, you know, 20, 30 lines of code, but it pulls all this stuff in. And um, I made a joke online. I, you know, I doing that for fun, I actually was able to use that same work and apply it to some work for um, the PyTorch team. So um, it seems totally random, but I basically put data regarding issues in a Google spreadsheet. And then I queried um, GitHub's API, update that spreadsheet and then copy paste the data back into some fields of some spreadsheet that I needed here at work. So uh, I think it's fun when you build stuff. I don't think everybody has to do this, but you know, I have like small windows of time when I can do it. Um, and uh, that's my one random story. So your favorite hobby outside of work is to do code that's not for work and sometimes make it applicable to work. It's I, so I'm all, okay. So I'd say it's my f- method of being creative Right. Like I like to draw and those things are fun, but yeah. I also like to think through like, ah, oh, how can I solve this one? You know, I have a ton of first world problems. Let's be realistic here. But um, you never know how many people are like you. Right. And mm-hmm. so that's why I like to kind of do these things. And for fun, I used to, you know, hack on Docusaurus. I still have all these grandiose ideas, you know, yeah. s- you know, packed away. But those require longer than a, you know, 30 minute shuttle ride or an hour shuttle ride. And so I tend to have to do work that like, you know, moves things along at this very small pace. And I think one thing about developers is, well, at least folks that I work with or the way I work is if I'm strictly in like a development mode, engineering mode, I need very large blocks of time of uninterrupted work so I can load up a mental model, do my work, and then like, you know, do stuff like that. And um, where I'm at in life is I don't have that time, you know, so that's where I do these small little things. Yeah, maybe I'll share it. (laughs) <laughs> How about you, Christine? What's your favorite hobby outside of work? Yeah, my favorite hobby is definitely traveling or uh, watching movies. Of uh, anybody is uh, friends with me on Facebook or follows me on Instagram, they see where I go. <laughs> go like to go to. I'm still trying to get to Alaska, but I did. I did sort of get a mini version of that by going to Iceland and seeing the glaciers. So that was that was really cool. I I do. I, I was really kind of like empathizing with you when you talk about spending time like coding because I think at nature most of us I'm not going to say but most of us have this sort of creativity um, streak in us I think that's what we were meant to do so whether it's like you're baking a cake or you're writing an app or you're making it's just something that gives you joy and I do find that um, I do like to spend time building something however small it is uh, writing some code, writing an app. Uh, I, I the other day I was I was doing something where you talked about some with triangles. <laughs> so oh, was, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yesterday I was uh, um, I uh, sometimes I write for the Ray Wenderlich, and that just gives me an outlet to actually explain things. So this iOS, I was writing uh, something related to iOS and triangles and oh, wow. trying to build things with core graphics in iOS. And I'm like, okay, this is really cool. I'm learning something new. Uh, the other day, not. Um, I was trying to upload something on a website and I decided to let me just write a Python script because when I see that I have to do something more than twice, mm-hmm. I immediately say I'm going to spend, it sometimes seems a bit insane, but I'm going to spend a lot of time to optimize for something that I have to do twice because maybe I'll have to do it four more times. 
And uh, so I go, I, I remember one time, uh, this was not actually a few days ago, I spent a lot of time learning Python for that one day to do that one job. And then I forgot Python until I needed to do it for PyTorch. But it's just that, 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 that kind of like joy of learning something new and creating something. And yes, I learned something new today. It's something that I, I like to do. Yeah. yeah, on that note of like yeah. doing some, okay, so I think it's common pro yeah. problem where you see an issue, you have to do it more than once and you start thinking, oh, how could I automate this? Um, I think for our work, you know, we've been trying to download or, or like download copies of our projects just to, you know, just to store it. And I was doing it manually one by one. And I was like, ah, oh, I should write a program. And I wrote a program. I, it's still, a, you know, it's a project internal, but it's something that someone could use in the future. And that feeling actually is really good. Um, on the topic of triangles. So all I'm trying to do is, okay, here's the idea. Here's the premise. I want to have a triangle on screen. And then from each of the, each of the sides of the triangle, I want to draw another triangle and then do that to fill up the whole screen. So that's all I'm trying to do. And like, I don't, I don't think Facebook cares about this particular project, but when I do release it, it's going to be on something like Glitch where people can go and like tweak with my variables. But I've been having to relearn really basic geometric math. Um, I finally have figured out how to find the, the midpoint of the lines. So I'm, I'm halfway there, you know, I'm almost there. Well, uh, you, you gave a lot more detailed answer than I was going to give to this question. My favorite hobby is just, you know, shuttling my kids to the various sporting <laughs> activities and events that they have and watching them uh, and watching them play soccer and basketball. And so that's that's something I love to do outside of work. It might sound kind of crazy because it's, I do it a lot, but um, that's my that's my favorite thing to do outside of open source work. Thank you very much, Eric and Christine, for joining me today on this first episode of The Diff. Um, I'd just like to say I love working with both of you. Uh, you both make this team really great. You make the open source program really awesome. And um, I couldn't ask for a better set of teammates to um, join me on this inaugural podcast for this. So thank you very much. All right, go, uh, Joel, thanks for including me. Uh, it's been fun and hope people learn. Yeah, and um, I'm happy that you got an insight into all the different things that we do at Open Source, and I got to learn a little bit about you, Eric, and triangles <laughs> and soccer. So it's it's been a really fun podcast, and I hope everyone checks out, checks it out. Hi, this is Joel Marcy, creator and host of The Diff. If you liked what you heard today, tell your friends. Like it, share it, review it, get us heard. Learn more about our program at opensource.facebook.com. And if the content you heard today or from any of our podcasts piqued your interest, check out facebook.com slash careers to learn more about the challenges we're solving in running an open source program at scale. I'm out.